0: Do you have your Bible open to 2 Kings 5? Your Bible may be paper, may be on your phone, 2 Kings 5. We're going to read some text this morning. Uh, a story that has really spoken to me over the years and still speaks to me. I think I need it, and uh, so we'll be there in a few minutes. Um, we started, I guess, a couple weeks back on this series called Flow, and what we're really looking for, what we're really interested in is trying to figure out what has God been up to from the beginning? Um, because we so easily think, what is God's will for me and for my life? And should I move to Omaha or should I move here? Should I take this promotion? Should I do this or should I date this person? I mean, we, we quickly move to what does God want me to do in my specific situation? That's not a bad thing to ask. But what will help inform those kind of questions are learning what God has been up to from the beginning. And so we've been talking about that the last few weeks. And specifically, how do, how do we move our hearts, our spirits into the flow of what God is doing? Let's set it up with a short video clip this morning, and then we'll talk some more about this.
1: power. What is power? The ability to enforce your will, brute strength, intelligence, innovation, wealth, influence. We strive for power in the halls of government. We work to expand our influence in the boardroom, the classroom we struggle to lengthen our lives. Day in, day out, we toil to increase our wealth. But how much control do we really have? Our best laid plans can fall apart in an instant. Our most trusted technology can fail. Our hard-earned investments can evaporate before our very eyes. And no matter how disciplined we are, Our bodies grow old and frail but we are not without hope even in our weakness there is good news for all people an eternal power beyond human understanding that can soften the hardest heart heal the deepest wound bring peace even joy in any circumstance And salvation to all who believe. That power is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only power that lasts.
0: You know, the gospel is the power of God according to Scripture, and the effect that it has on us should be quite humbling because essentially one of the messages uh, that we see on the cross is when it comes to the most existential, important existential life issue that, that you and I face, we are powerless, Right? When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our relationship with God, you and I bring nothing to the table. And so it's through the cross, it's through God's work on our behalf that His power is unleashed into our lives. Power. In Detroit, uh, Michigan, back in the 1930s, there were three boys, three young men, who decided to accost a fellow who is sitting on the back row of a Detroit uh, urban bus. And so they mocked him and they ridiculed him and they tried to provoke him to do something and the man just sat there and refused to engage them. They couldn't get a rise out of this stranger. This went on for several minutes. Finally, the stranger got up, got up because his, his stop was approaching, rang the bell, and as he was getting off the bus, he pulled out one of his business cards, handed it to one of the three hooligans, and they watched him as as he disappeared down the sidewalk and the bus moved off. And they looked at that card and they were <laughs> speechless the card simply said, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> they noticed when he stood up that he had been bigger, much bigger than they thought when he was sitting down. They didn't realize, though, that they had been picking a fight with a man who had reigned as heavyweight boxing champion for 12 years. Humility amplifies power. Power it gains traction when it is shepherd by a, shepherded by a humble heart. There was another boxing champ a few years after that, Muhammad Ali. One time, Muhammad Ali was, was flying between cities on route to his next defense of his heavyweight belt. And uh, he was on this airplane when the pilot came on and said, Please fasten your seatbelts. We are about to encounter some turbulence. And if you've flown very much, you know that when the captain says some turbulence, you mean you know it's gonna get pretty wild, okay? So everyone was was buckling up and, and the flight attendants were walking up and down the rows, making sure all of the seat belts were fastened, when one of them noticed that Muhammad Ali's belt was not fastened. It was just laying there. And so this flight attendant said to him, Sir, you need to fasten your seatbelt. The pilot said there is going to be some turbulence. Muhammad Ali looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly replied, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> we live in a world that I think you could make a case that a world that worships power a world that adores the powerful. Um, and pride in a world like this can be a big problem, can be a big problem. The insistence that you and I feel to project an image of power, to project an image of success on those that we meet, on those that come into contact with us, is, is pressing in on us constantly. And those who experience some success in business, some success in sports, some success in whatever, in their profession, in whatever sphere, they can begin to believe their own press clippings, begin to believe that they are something that perhaps they are not. But Scripture from beginning to end in the flow of God's work in the world reminds us that power is amplified by a humble spirit, not by a proud spirit. In fact, power is compromised by a proud spirit. And so we roll into 2 Kings chapter 5, and we meet Naaman. And this, I think, is why I identify with the story or why the Spirit speaks so powerfully to me through this story because I like this guy, I get this guy. Naaman is a powerful army general, leader of the armies of Aram. And in his story, we have an incredibly poignant lesson about strength, about leadership, and about God Almighty. This guy Naaman was a. It was kind of a man's man. I mean, he was he was a professional soldier. He was a leader of men. Uh, this guy knew from experience what it sounded like, what it smelled like, what it felt like when armies collided on a battlefield. He knew what it was like to hear shrieks of horror and pain as the wounded lay dying on a battlefield. He knew what it felt like to hear shouts of victory and glory as his army left the field of battle as victors. He knew all of this. He was the commander of Aram's armies, and in those days, there were several routes, as there probably still are, to gaining such a position. You could, you could move up in prominence in, in different ways, in different kind of, of modes. One thing that you could do would be kind of the political route you learn how to cut backroom deals, you learn how to give favors to those who are a few steps above you in the power hierarchy so that they can ease your movement upward. Uh, You could, if you were born of a wealthy family, you could use money to influence slash bribe those who could open doors of opportunity for you. You could take a much shorter route and just, for example, marry the daughter of the king. That was a pretty quick way to get ahead as well. But Naaman, did none of these, he took another route to power and influence, he earned it, he merited it. He, through gutting through it out on the battlefield, day after day, war after war, battle after battle, he had, he had achieved his status. And the Bible lets us know that in the very first verse of 2 Kings chapter 5, it tells us that this man was highly esteemed by the king of Aram. In other words, this guy had done so much for the kingdom and for the king through these victories that he was honored. The Bible tells us that he was a valiant soldier, all right? So we know this guy was was the real deal. He got where he was through merit, um, and the Bible lets us know this was was the route he took to the top, so he had earned his position. There was, however, one battle that he never could seem to win, all right? Um, His battle was against an agonizing skin disease called leprosy. And beneath his shining armor and his shining achievements, there was a a 24-hour-a-day endless battle that he could not win. And it was painful. No doubt you have your battle as well, and I have my battles as well. And the story kind of reminds us from the get-go, there are... Battles, personal battles that are very visible, public, if you will. Maybe your marriage fell apart. Everybody knows about it. Your business went bankrupt. Everybody seems to know about it. The newspaper is writing about it. Uh, Maybe it's a physical handicap that you live with or have lived with for a long time. Some of the battles that we face are very visible. Some of them are not visible. Um, Some of them are quite hidden, are quite secret. There may be emotional scars that hurt still from your childhood. Other people don't necessarily see that, but you live with that. There might be a physical disease that you suffer with that your friends don't know you suffer with, that you have hidden, that you have masked. Um, There may be all sorts of things, right, that skeletons in the closet or whatever that that you hide, There there are battles that you fight over and over and over, and you can't seem to win. Naaman's battle was against leprosy. His inner battle, however, was against pride, all right? So he had the physical battle. He also had an inner battle, and that one was against pride. Hope came to him from an unlikely place through his military conquests. I mean, part of that was carting off loot from foreign countries who they had defeated on the battlefield, of which Israel was one of those. Um, part of it was the human capital they stole from those countries. And one result of that was that his wife had a, had a, had a um, servant, um, a maid who helped her, and and this girl was from Israel. And this girl, no doubt, constantly hearing her mistress talk about the agony of her husband's disease, this girl said, you know, there is a prophet. Last week we talked about Elijah. Now we talk about his successor, Elisha. She said, there's this guy, Elisha, back in my home country who could heal the master who could heal your husband and the, mother, the 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 woman was quite interested in this and she shared this with her husband and frankly he was willing to try anything at this point so he asked the king of aram can i go the king of aram of course admired him so greatly felt in such a great debt to him and said sure in fact let me write a letter that will facilitate your passage and so he headed out into israel this time not to conquer and pillage, but to receive healing. Letter from the king. um, Also, all sorts of payment he thought he might need in order to earn or buy this healing. He had like 750 pounds of silver. He carried a whole a whole gob of gold with him. He had like 10 uh, brand new, very fine garments that was also currency used in those days to exchange that um, for services or for products. And so he was ready. He had an entourage of soldiers and chariots as well to carry all of this stuff, and he headed to meet Israel's king. That meeting went quite well. Israel's king was, frankly, very intimidated by Naaman, um, knew of his track record on the battlefield, and was, was kind of scared. and was like, what did I do? Why are you here? And he said, no, I'm, I'm here to get healing. Can you help me find Elisha? The king said, sure. And so the king gave him directions to find Elisha. The prophet hears about all of this, Um, that the Aramean general is on his way and that the Aramean general hopes to be cured of leprosy. And so Elisha dispatches his servant to go deliver a simple message. The message is this. So his his servant heads out. The message is this. All you need to do do is go right here to the Jordan River and baptize yourself or immerse yourself um, seven times and you will be cured of your leprosy. Doesn't sound like a big deal, really. But apparently, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal to Naaman. It was a big deal. First of all, <laughs> he's come all this way to have a meeting with this Israelite prophet who will not even dignify him by coming to speak personally with him. In fact, at no point in this story do Elisha and Naaman actually talk. Never does he get to have a meeting with the prophet, only through the intercessor, the servant of the prophet. That was kind of a big deal with him. Um, a big deal in this story is <laughs> Naaman heads off, right? looking for a dermatological solution, and God has for him a deeper solution. And so I think that's why Elisha's message wasn't so easy for Naaman, because it wasn't just the leprosy, it was also the pride. It was also the pride. So this foreign prophet will not take the time to come see me, will not meet with me, instead sends a servant boy. And then what's this bit about going and immersing myself in the Jordan... Up in Damascus, where I live, there are better rivers. And what's this deal about seven times. Why not just one time? What's up with the number seven here? Surely, the guy is joking. I mean, am I on like a hidden camera show or something? Is, is this a gag reel? Or are they going to show this on, on Israeli television? Look, Aramean general humiliated by local prophet. I mean, I don't know. He's thinking all of this, except probably... No TV back then, right? But something like that. Pick it up in verse 11. This is how he felt. And I think a lot of us can actually understand this. (laughs) Naaman went away angry and said, Okay, I thought that he would surely come out to me. Right? He would stand, call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the, the Farper rivers in Damascus better than any of these waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. Again, I meditate on the story, and I get the sense that the center of gravity in this story is not so much about washing In the river. It's not so much about leprosy. The center of gravity in this story seems to me, I mean, it feels like it is to me, about pride, about a proud heart. This guy, Naaman, would have much preferred a path to wholeness that called on him to do something significant. I mean, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what act of bravery, what act of valor, or money. Tell me what, what great price I can pay to obtain this healing. That's what I'm ready to do. I want something expensive. I want something significant, and I'm willing to do anything. Yeah, pretty much. But the, but the option you're giving me is, is way too simple. But talking about his pride, I'll say this. Like many of us, he had his pride, but he wasn't consumed with pride. I mean, he does listen to others. And verse 13, we pick it up. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down (laughs) and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The general found the cure that he was looking for. His skin disease was completely healed healed. The pain vanished. The discoloration was gone. But Naaman's cure went a lot deeper than just the leprosy in his skin that was cured. He also found a cure he wasn't looking for, right? I mean, his path to healing led him to an encounter with a power far greater than he had ever encountered anywhere. It was an encounter with God himself, Verse 15, after his healing, verse 15, listen to what he says. He says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Verse 17, he proclaims that he will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. He's a believer, guys, at the end of the story. Yes, his skin is cured. Great. His heart is cured as well. And so what I want you to know on your outline this morning, the first, the first line there about his road to healing, and, and I think it has something to say about our road to healing, Naaman's path to wholeness involved a humbling of his spirit. A humbling of his spirit. And so, as I learn to humble my heart before God and no other God, I find myself in the flow of His power, in the flow of His favor, in new and, and fresh ways. Second thing I want you to write is this, the power of humility, okay? The power of humility. The Bible affirms from beginning to end that the humble are in rhythm with the flow of God and enjoy His favor telling you guys, go home, get on your computer, go to the Concordance, just type in the word humble and humility, and look at how many times that shows up from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and look at it's always a good thing, all right? It's always a favored thing. It's always something that places a person into the flow of God. Um, God's love, God's strength, God's favor are unleashed in the lives of the humble. Just a few verses. Had to cull this down significantly, but a few verses. Second Samuel 22, verse 28, speaking to the Lord, You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. And then this beautiful verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. If they will humble themselves, pray and repent. Psalm eighteen twenty seven. God, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. Psalm 25, 9. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. 147, 6. The Lord sustains the humble. Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one I esteem. Okay? Okay? This is the one I highly regard. This is the one I honor. This is the one I esteem, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James 4, verse 6, and then verse 10, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This isn't just about you and God. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under uh, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. So humility in the presence of God And in the presence of the people who bear his image, covers you with God's favor, puts you in the flow of God. Now quickly, we're going to talk about moving lower and finish with this this morning. Moving lower. Um, The first thing I want you to write down in your outline is this. I move myself lower when I long for humility. I have to want it. I have to burn for it. I long for humility so that I may be pulled into its transformative power. Now, I love this book, and I'm recommending it at the bottom of your outline this morning, Humilitas by John Dixon. Great quote from this book. Listen to what he says. He says, humility is not an ornament to be worn. It is an ideal that will transform, right? It's not another thing that you put into your resume to impress other people. Wow, look at how humble she is. Um, It is not something you wear like that. It is an ideal that will transform you. By the way, if you think that humility is just some sort of churchy, religious, ethereal concept with no basis in the quote-unquote real world, then I would recommend you read books by like Jim Collins, right? Um, the business guru who wrote Good to Great and, and many other books, Good to Great, he looks at um, these 11 companies that have gone from being good companies to being great companies. And one thing he finds in all 11, what he calls a key factor that was present in the growth phase of these companies, he calls level five leadership. Level five leadership, the CEO and often the executive team, but definitely the CEO exhibits level five leadership, which is really simple. He says, level five leadership is about two things. It's one about steely determination and two, an attitude of humility those two present in successful good-to-great companies. Then he wrote um, another book um, that kind of is the flip side of this called How the Mighty Fall, and in this book, um, he talks about how arrogance, corporate arrogance, and individual arrogance in leaders in corporate America often precede or accompany the downfall of their careers and their companies. Um, Anyway, that's just a little sidetrack there, but it's not just some kind of spiritual concept that, that doesn't work in the world, um, it really does. And more and more business writers are talking about the power of humility because it connects you. Well, they're not talking about it because of this, but I'm telling you the connection, why it's powerful is that it connects you to the flow of God and it it reminds you of a truth that you are not at the center of the universe, right? God is and that other people matter and those things enable us to live humbly before God, and achieve more than we could otherwise. So the Bible affirms humility because it knows that it's at the center of this flow of God, it's at the center of who God is. And so it will have a great impact on your peace, the peace that you experience, on your satisfaction in life, and yes, on your ability to impact your business or your family or your church or your community. And so this journey into humility, this lowering process, um, begins with just acknowledging how powerful it is and how much I need it. Moving lower also, this is the second thing on the outline in moving lower. It, it, it happens when I reflect on, I meditate on the humility of Jesus. And of course, this reminds me of just how prideful I am. How, ugh how prideful I am. Um, Great place. We're not going to go here this morning, but a great place if you want to just meditate on something this week would be go to, go to Philippians chapter two and just read the first 11 verses slowly and think about what those 11 verses are telling you about yourself and are telling you about Jesus Christ. They tell us that even though Jesus was God Even though Jesus had all authority in the universe, even though Jesus was omnipotent, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He served those around him. His was a life marked with extraordinary humility. And so Jesus, you see him hanging out with the poor, you see Jesus spending time with the sick. You see Jesus wasting time, if you will, with children, with those who can't help him get ahead, with those who can't boost his career. That's where Jesus is because of his lowliness, because of his compassion. And then another thing that I do, in lowering myself, I deflect or I predecide to deflect praise to others i predecide to deflect praise to others great people do this great coaches do this great political leaders do this there aren't many great business leaders do this Great moms and dads do this, deflect praise to others. Their first reaction when they're praised for something good that they're a part of, when they're lauded for some triumph or some success, is to acknowledge the contributions of others. That's what great people do. Now, quickly, another thing that I do, I consciously choose to listen actively to people regardless of their status. And as I talked about Naaman's problem with pride, I also shared with you, he had moments where he did listen. And those moments led to his healing. He listened to the voice of the servant girl through his wife. Yes, he listened to his wife, gentlemen. (laughs) He listened to his servants, his underlings, when they said, what are you doing, man? You're going to go back to Damascus without following the instructions of the prophet? And Naaman basically said, you're right, I'm an idiot. Let's go to the river right now. Let's do this. He listened. So I consciously choose to listen actively to people regardless of their their status. And then this one's kind of hard for us. And this is one that John Dixon recommends in his book. I invite criticism from those I trust. I invite criticism from those I trust I want to hear what they say about what they see in my life what what needs to change what what's not honoring god and then finally and this one's interesting and this is also from Dixon's book he says I renounce humility as a goal that I can a- attain all right I renounce that as a goal I can attain but I embrace it as an ideal that can transform me. I mean, if I'm waiting for the day when I finally cross the line and now I'm humble, I mean, that, that's kind of wrong headed. Um, this virtue doesn't work like some of the other virtues in that way. It is a transformative virtue. The truly humble person, this is, this is one thing that makes this virtue different from others, right? The truly humble person, think about this, is not concerned about appearing. Humble. The truly humble person is not at all concerned about appearances of humility. Two people I know really quickly, I just want to put these in really quickly before we end. Two people that I know that have taught me a lot about humility. One, when our family very first moved to Rio, and actually I met her on my survey trip, but we got to know her better as as our young church in Rio interacted with her, was a woman named Alma Smith, which interestingly in Portuguese, Alma means soul. So Alma Smith, she lived on the outskirts of Rio in the poorest, uh, vast neighborhood on the outskirts of Rio. Comendador Suadis is the neighborhood. She lived out there, and, and she had moved in the 50s with her husband, Arlie. They were going to plant a church. Well, not long into their project, Arlie had passed away, and Alma, instead of moving back to the States, she had felt this great care for the orphan children that lived in that zone of the city, and so she started an orphanage. Um, you probably haven't heard of her. You probably haven't seen her featured in any newsletter or any book or anything like that because she wasn't a person that ever wanted to be featured in anything like that. But she started this orphanage and she just for decades ministered to children in Rio who had little opportunities. I've heard her called before the Mother Teresa of the Churches of Christ, which I think is a compliment to her, Um, but she just touched a lot of lives and she helped clothe them and feed them. She gave them a safe place to live and she made sure that they got the education they needed to potentially move out of the slums she taught me a lot I think about Sergio Mata, who I've, I know i 've talked about in some context before with y'all, but this is a friend of mine he 's a lawyer in Rio, and he and his family started coming to church several years into the church planting. Um, they were all converted to Christ, and I have these memories of this guy, just a very shepherding sort of person who has this unusual love for elderly people. He always wanted to hang around with the oldest folks and was always in the nursing homes or in the homes of the shut-ins because that's just what he, that's where he loved to be. He loved to be with those folks. And I just have memories of him spending time with those folks. I have memories of him um, doing all of these ministries that nobody would ever see. I mean, you would show up and he would be the one arranging the chairs or picking up trash around the building before church service, not because anyone asked him to do that, but because that's who he was. He was a servant. And so when it came time in Rio to appoint our very first elders, he was pretty much unanimous pick of the congregation and served as one of the first elders in Rio. But people that I see that exemplify everything I'm not as far as humility goes and what I want to be. Those people draw me in to the power of humility and shape me. And then as we finish today, the last word I think on humility is this feature of Christianity that I think more than any other humbles us, and it's God's grace. And we see it at work in the story of of Naaman, even in the Old Testament, Because here's Naaman. He's got a lot to offer God, or he's got a lot to offer Elisha. I mean, he's willing to take on any job. He's willing to climb any mountain. He has a fortune of money to put into the coffers of Elisha's ministry and everything. And basically, the message of God is, no thanks. This one's on me. And that's what God says even today. And certainly that message amplified through the gospel, at the core of the gospel, God saying, it's on me. (laughs) You don't have anything to offer me. You don't have anything that I'm lacking, anything that I need. But I'll give you salvation as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Naaman struggled with this idea, obviously, of going down to the river and immersing himself. And I suspect that some struggle today with baptism. It's controversial, um, they tell me. And maybe it's this idea, for some, it's this idea that baptism is some sort of work that I do to merit salvation, which is not at all what it is, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's actually the opposite of that. Baptism is where you acknowledge his work. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, it's about his death, his burial, his resurrection. You are just yielding your life to that. You're trusting in that. You're placing yourself in what Jesus did. That's really what's controversial about it, I think, is that baptism is this acknowledgement that I bring nothing and that Jesus did everything. So that's a humbling thing, isn't it? that I can't do anything except trust in that death, burial, and resurrection when it comes to my salvation.